You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Well, good morning. Good to have you here with us. Thank you, band. Um, yeah, great to see so many of you out. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, my name's Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. Big warm welcome to you. First time guests and visitors here in answer to prayer on behalf of the staff and leadership. Great to have you here with us. If you weren't here with us last week, we dropped some big news. Um, next week is Praxis's second birthday. So we turn to next week, which we're very excited about. It's been an amazing couple years of growth and ministry. And as we start into our third ministry year, we're going to be launching a third service. Uh, we had more people than ever before out last week in uh, between our two gatherings on a long weekend. Um, outside of Easter and Christmas, we've never had that many people all together. And we know summer's kind of ending and people are just coming back, but we're, we're moving into three gatherings just to accommodate everyone who's calling Praxis home as we come back from summer. And then by, by God's grace, um, we, we hope that God's going to use all of us in, in, our, in our building complexes, our workplaces, our streets, our, our social networks to be drawing more people. We're, we're excited to be baptizing a, a whole schwack of people next weekend, and it just seems the Lord continues to draw people. So we're moving to three services to, to make some space for that. And so we need to ask some of you to please make that third service your home. If, if this could work for you. Now, if you have kids and you're in the nine and the 11, there's gonna be childcare in um, the first two gatherings, but not the third. We'll have packs for kids, that sort of thing. But if you're not using the children's ministry, would you consider attending the 1 p.m. gathering as a missional service, as an, a way of um, freeing up some space so that as people come in, they're not having to sit on laps or the stairs or anything like that. Um, we're very, very thankful for that. If you, if you have kids and you wanna have them in the gathering with you and doesn't um, affect your nap time, consider the 1 p.m. If you like staying up till three in the morning on Saturday, for, for goodness sake, just sleep in, okay, get, get your eight hours and then come to the 3 p.m. service. We also um, shared some other big news, though, that we are only going to have to go to three gatherings for 14 weeks, and that's because effective um, Christmas Eve, we are going to be moving downtown to the Rotary Center. If you haven't been there before, uh, fantastic facility right in the heart of downtown. It's got tons of space inside, so we can go back to two gatherings, have some room to grow. Um, 50% more kid space, which we're desperately in need of. And then it's got um, free parking. All of the street parking's free on Sunday. There's a 400-stall parkade right next door, completely free on Sundays. And, I mean, it's got, like, this hangout space. It's got a restaurant, a cafe. So we don't need to shoo you out after the gathering to make space in the parking lot and deal with this whole parking fiasco which uh, thank you for enduring for so long, so patiently. So very excited about this and just want to make sure you know next week we, we will have the 1 p.m. service beginning and um, very excited by all that the Lord's up to and excited for the season ahead as well. So um, look forward to having you out next week. And if I didn't mention already, we're doing baptisms and a barbecue after the third gathering next week down at the beach. And so put that in your calendars. Hope to have you out. Grab your Bibles if you haven't already. Genesis 34. While you do that, I'm going to pray and uh, we will get into this text. Well, Lord, I, I 
just, I thank you as we've been singing that um, it's your pursuit of us, that you are a God who pursues and, and makes us righteous. And that's our single hope. It's my hope as I come in this morning, just coming in dependent and recognizing I'm in need of you. And um, I thank you that we have the promises of your word that when we're weak, you're strong that you're the one who saved us and pursued us. You're the one holding on to us. And this morning, I just need you to, to um, do a work through me that I feel radically incapable of and take this really tough section of scripture. Would you apply it to every single heart here? Thank you how you're growing this community in breadth, but we want to grow in depth, and I want this gospel to further impact in my heart and all of this congregation's heart. And so, Holy Spirit, I just plead, come and do the work that only you can. Amen. All right, yeah, if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been looking at this character, Jacob. Um, he, he ran away from the promised land, escaping his murderous brother Esau, and then um, had a whole journey where God used a lot of the really messy situations to do a formative work inside of Jacob, eventually calling him to go back into the promised land to face his murderous brother Esau. That's where we left off last week was with Jacob just coming into the promised land. And now this week, we're picking up with him entering. He's entered into the promised land. Um, he's returning. And I'm going to give you a warning on the front end is that this is a, you've heard it read already, but this is a really difficult section of text. This has been a really hard one for me to work through this week. I, um, I wept halfway through um, half of the, the first, and um, there's just there's a lot of hard topics in here I know that are going to hit home for many. Deals with some ugly stuff. Um, verse 1, it opens this way. It says, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and laid with her and humiliated her. Dinah here, Jacob's daughter, is seized by the prince of the land. And this word seized in the English Standard Version, which we're reading from, it's this Hebrew word, lakak, and it's used nine times, which I'm getting nerdy with you, but it shows up nine times in one chapter, which is really unusual. Um, nine times this word took or seized or grabbed is used to describe two events. The first we just read about this guy Shechem coming and seizing Dinah. The second time it occurs is at the end of the chapter in verse 25 with Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, taking, seizing their sword to kill an entire city. Two atrocious acts that this, this text records and kind of bookended between them, sandwiched between them rather, is is a, a variety of topics that all kind of come under this one heading, which is how are God's people to live in the midst of a people that aren't God's people? How are we to live in the midst of a culture that lives in opposition to the will of God? How should we parent our children in the midst of a culture that is opposed to the God that we serve? Lots in here. Um, what we're going to see here is that through some of our actions, and more specifically our inactions, um, catastrophic events come into play. And 
fact, it's, it's through Jacob's actions and more pointedly his inaction that the stage for this whole chapter is set. If you were with us um, back in 28, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean here about Jacob's inaction. Back in chapter 28, when Jacob fled the promised land, you'll remember he, he went out into the desert. He's on his way to Padamaram. He laid down, put his head on a rock. He had the vision of Jacob's ladder, those angels ascending and descending. He had that vision and God made some promises to him in chapter 28, but Jacob made some promises in chapter 28 as well. He said this, or the text tells us, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way I go, will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, so that he he brings me back to this land, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, this pillar that I've set up, will be God's house and all that you give me, I'll give a full tent. So 20 years prior to where we are in the text today, Jacob makes a vow that if God will be with him, which he was, he would come back, he would go back to Bethel, um, but he doesn't. When we pick it up today, he hasn't returned to Bethel. He's got about 95%, maybe 98% of the way there, but he stopped just short, actually 25 kilometers short of where he said he was going to stop. Reverse with me. So we're, we're in chapter 34. Go back just three, four verses. You'll see this. It says this, chapter 33, verse 18. Jacob came safely. So God has kept him safe, as he promised. He said, if God will keep me safe, I'll do this. It highlights this. Jacob came safely, reminding us of what he said in 28, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land, on his way back from Padamaram, and he camped before the city. And then the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he, brought, he, he, he bought for 100 pieces of money a piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means um, the God of Israel. So he said he was going to come back. He was going to go back to Bethel. Instead, he gets near to it and then just goes into another city, buys a piece of land, sets up shop. And, and kind of to make himself feel better, I think, he erects an altar. So he'd said, hey, I'll come back to this other altar, Bethel. Like, well, I stopped short, but I'll put an altar up. I'll put a stone up. And he kind of, I think he, he's doing this to kind of ease his guilt. It's like a religious action where he can feel better about himself. And I think we do this too sometimes. We get close to what we said we were going to do. We get close to fulfilling our vows. We... We get close to what God desires, and, but we stop short. And we think, well, I got most of the way here. And then often to, to celebrate our near obedience, we'll, we'll, we'll put some sort of religious spin on it where we can congratulate ourselves, pat ourselves on the back, and, 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 and think that God's pleased because, well, we, we kind of put this religious spin on it at the end. But there's a danger here. Jacob is 25 kilometers short of where he said he'd be. And so instead of going to the place he said, he's bought some land off Shechem. And Jacob's failure to follow through on his promise is actually going to have some consequences. Where he decides to raise his kids is going to have an effect on them. He found a good deal on some land, but there's other things. He, he may have overlooked some other important pieces. It's not just about where you can get the best house for your family. It's about what's best for your family. Having the biggest house on the block or even in town 
might not be good for your kids. It might be all you can think about, but it might actually be of detriment to your kids. And we need to consider not just the affordability of where we live, but the spirituality of where we live as well. His daughter, the context here is she's out and about in this city where he's moved his little girl. She's out being social with other kids. She's just being a kid, as kids should be able to be. In the place where her daddy moved her, visiting kids of her age, and then something happens. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, sees her, seized her, laid with her, and humiliated her. In the original language, it's very clear what this is talking about. This is talking about rape. Um, the New Living Translation, it words it this way. It says, when the local prince Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. In the King James Version, it says, he took her, laid with her, and violated her. The, the text we're reading from the, King, the English Standard, it says that he humiliated her. The reason it puts this language on here is because in the original Hebrew, there's the context that this was a public act that was done to Dinah. This is a horrific story. She's literally just out being a teenager in the place her dad moved her, and this happens. He's moved her into a sexually perverse culture, and she becomes the victim of it. And I, I think there's a lot of correlation between the setting of this story and where we find ourselves in our culture today. Much like we uh, saw with Sodom and Gomorrah a little earlier on in the book, this is a hypersexualized culture, and today we, we find ourselves in one as well, where sex isn't treated as something special or sacred. It's treated as just a physical thing. It's just an urge. It's like an appetite. It's something carnal and a feeling we have that we need to obey. That's what we're, we're, we're taught, actually. You know, we're, our appetites are who we are. What you want is at the core of your being. But the Bible actually counters that. Um, it says sex is a lot more than that. There's... Many who are in this room, there's many who will be listening online who know this. You have perhaps had things happen to you. You know that sex is impactful on a deeper level than just physical, that there is a deep spiritual thing happening. If you've been molested or if you've been raped or you've been abused or you've been forced into sex, you know it has a way of affecting us in very deep ways. Because sex isn't just a light thing. God designed it that way. The Bible says sex is a, is a commingling. It's a uniting of not just physical bodies, but souls. And, and this is why sex affects us so deeply. It's a spiritual act, and it's a sacred act. But the culture then just as the culture now is trying to just say it's just a physical thing. It's just a base thing. Notice, if you look down at your text, how it describes it. It, it, it says here, Shechem saw her. He sees, he likes, something's attracted to him. It woke an appetite, and, and that appetite becomes the justification for his action. And the same is often true today. This is kind of the thinking. I, I see that, I like that, I should have it. Because if the culture tells us at the core of our being, we're just physical appetites. We're just carnal beings 
What we want, we should have. If we want it, it's natural, it's justifiable, we should, we should have it. And this is really what sex in this culture, in, in our culture, is being reduced to, is just an appetite. But I feel is not a justification for violating God's design for sex. And when we do, deep in our soul, we know it. Somebody wiser and older and before me um, said this, feelings are good servants, but they're terrible masters. They're good servants, but they're terrible masters. And I think we've forgotten this as a culture, though. We think feelings are who we are. Feelings are meant to rule, is what we think, but they're actually meant to serve. Shechem has made his feelings his master, and, and, and we are right here culturally as well. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her, and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and said, get me this girl as my wife. I want you to notice the order that the text lays this out in. He sees. He's drawn. He then sleeps with her. Then he comes to love her. And then he wants to marry her. This is the cultural order today as well. You see something, you like it, we should... Um, I feel like I want to sleep with you, okay? And then I want to try you out. Oh, it turns out I like you. Um, oh, I love you. Now I'll marry you. This is contrapositive. This is upside down from what the Bible describes as marriage and relationships and how they're meant to work, though. First, we're supposed to know somebody. From there, you get drawn to who they actually are, not just their body, then you come to love who they are, not just how they look or they make you feel. Then you marry them, and from there you sleep with them. So it's who they are that draws them, not what they look like. It's who they are that causes us to love them, not what they're like in bed. It's the vows that we make that sustains the romance, not how sexy they are. Sex, then, is performed within the context of marriage where it's safe. Now, this, this book here... Uh, Genesis, it's written to the people of Israel 400 years after the event that we're reading this morning. And they're coming back into the promised land. So after this, they go out, they spend 400 years in captivity. Then they come out back into this land where these people are dwelling. And, and, and this story is written to instruct them on how to engage with the culture around them as they take possession. Because the culture doesn't match up with God's definition of how things should work just like it doesn't today. And so I think that there's a warning in here for us as well, in particular for parents in the room. This is showing us a horrifically accurate picture of the culture around us. Today, just like then, sex is trivialized. Women are objectified. Look at, look at what he says, get me this woman, like she's just some possession, like a plaything. Then, just as now, or today just as then, culture is aggressive. And this should challenge us, I think, first and foremost as parents to consider where we live, who our kids connect with, who's teaching our kids, what our kids are being taught about sex. Because as parents, we've been tasked by the Bible with this job of teaching our children how to walk in the way of the Lord, teaching them to obey the Lord and all that he's commanded to train them up in the way. 
Now, if you didn't know, in the back, we're using something called the New City Catechism as part of our kids' curriculum. Um, some of you, if you've come up in older church traditions, uh, you're familiar with this word catechism. Some of you aren't. Catechism is essentially, it means um, a way people are formed. And so it's a, a series of questions that everyone's asking, and, and then Christian responses to that. We're training the kids in this in the back. We've got all of our curriculum and stuff up on our website, too, if you're ever interested. But w we do this because culture is catechizing our kids. It is. They're teaching them answers to the questions. And so we want, we want to do this better. Up on our website, we've got resources. We have actually have songs for every single one of the catechism questions so that kids can learn this, and it makes it easier. It sticks in their brain, because guess what? Culture has songs that are catechizing your children. It does. Everything is forming us. Everything's forming us. So we've got a number of resources up on our, on our page. Just to this point is that we cannot leave the instruction of our children to the culture, to the school system, or to the government. This falls, first and foremost, on the parents' Shoulders, And because the husband is the head of the home, according to the Bible, this falls first and foremost on the husband's shoulders. And so just to the fellow dads in the room, the question I want to ask is, are we guarding our kids? Are we training them? Are we plugging them into community where they can find good community, where they might find a good husband or a good wife one day? I mean, Abe, he didn't want um, Isaac to intermarry with the culture around, so he brought him away. If you remember, I mean, the same thing. Isaac and Rebecca, they did this. They didn't want Jacob to intermarry. Here, Jacob's done nothing, though. He, he hasn't thought about where he's placed his daughter, and as we read on, what we're going to see is that he hasn't protected her. It's actually... Jacob's action that brought the family here, and as we read on, what we're going to see, it's a failure to act on Jacob's part that has made this situation far worse. Listen to this. So Shechem has come. He's taken Dinah, seized her, grabbed her, raped her. And Jacob says, heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were away, so he kept his peace. Jacob hears what has happened and literally does nothing. And as a father of five little girls, this makes me mad. There is a time to hold your peace, and there is a time where you most certainly should not hold your peace. And when your little baby girl is defiled, that is one of those times here. Jacob is a weak, weak man, and unfortunately... Meatheads like Shechem have a way of finding women who have weak fathers or no fathers at all. The dad has a very vital role in the family. And it's, it's no mistake Satan is coming for the fathers so much in our culture. Very vital role. And some of you here, you know this firsthand. You've been hurt because your dad, like Shechem, has failed. Like, like Isaac, like Jacob, pardon me, has failed. Dads are meant to run interference. They're, they're, they're the defensive linebackers for their daughters. They're placed by God 
to interfere and protect them. And, and this happens to Dinah because of Jacob's failure to lead. He's thinking about real estate. He's, he's thinking about anything else. He's he, failing to think about the spiritual environment he's raising his kids, the, the health of his family. And when something does happen, he does nothing. Even when the abuser comes to his house, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. He comes right to his house. Hamor spoke with him saying, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give him to her to be her wife. He said, hey, he liked, he liked raping her. Now he'd like to have her for his wife. Why don't you make marriages with us? Give your daughters to us. Take your daughters for ourselves. You dwell with us. The land will be open to you. Dwell. Trade in it. Get property. He knows what he, knows what he wants. This guy likes property. He's thinking about real estate. He's thinking about land. I can get him with that. Shechem also said to, to Jacob, let me find favor in your eyes. Ask whatever you want. Ask a great bride price. Ask any gift, and I'll give it to you. Just give me the woman. They actually have her still back in their house. We're going to see that in a minute. She's back in their house. He's come to pay for her like she's some sort of prostitute. Hamor shows up. He doesn't apologize for his son's rape. He essentially says, my son likes your daughter. Now he wants to have her all the time. And Hamor, like Jacob, is another sort of bad dad. Hamor is enabling wickedness. Um, and, and sometimes situations like this happen because Dads like Jacob fail to protect their daughters. Sometimes they happen because dads like Hamor enable their wicked sons. In fact, sometimes boys are praised for their sexual conquests. Dads who would be mad if their daughters were taken advantage of high-five their boys when they go out and do it. Both fathers in this text are just horrific failures. Hamor walks his boy over to Jacob's house, and instead of making him apologize, he tries to broker a deal, treating Dinah like a prostitute. And he says, you dwell with us. The land will be open to you. Trade, get property. Get what you want, give me what I want. There's three notes, things we need to see here. First, the culture that surrounds is not neutral. It's not. It's trying to overtake. It wants to usurp. It wants to take over. It wants you to lose your distinction and become just like it. Come. Become like us. Second thing, <clears throat> the culture is going to promise great things to try to get you to become like it. Comes. We'll give you houses. We'll give you riches but it comes at a horrific cost. Third thing to notice is all of this is going on and still Jacob's doing nothing. The guy hasn't even said a word. The text doesn't record him saying anything. He's like Adam. When Satan came to the garden and lured Eve away, he's supposed to be protecting her. Instead, he's doing nothing. He's cowarding off in the distance, 
Jacob is like his father, Adam, doing nothing. And, and man, I have five daughters, and this, this text clearly has just been sawing me apart this week. If somebody did this to my girls, I mean, I, I would be doing prison ministry from the inside. That's what would happen. You guys would be bringing me food, and yeah, I, I can't imagine how a dad can just stand by. But here's something else I know. Every single dad in this room, myself included, is standing by while culture is getting our kids to one degree or another. And we need to not fall into this same error of inaction that we see Jacob doing in this text. Jacob has abdicated his responsibility, and in the middle of this interaction between Jacob and and his daughter's abuser, his sons come home. Look at verse 7. The sons of Jacob, they came in from the fields as soon as they heard of it. They're men of action. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done this outrageous thing by laying with their sister. Such a thing must not be done. They're outraged like Jacob should have been. And they speak up like Jacob should have. In um, Song of Solomon, which we don't quote very often on Sunday morning, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, there's a story there, I love it, of um, these brothers, and they said, what should we do? What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her, tries to be with her? Well, if she's like a door, very friendly, kind of open, flirty, if she's a door, they said, we're going to become a wall in front of her. That's what good brothers do. That's what her daddy should have done. They said, if she's a wall, we're going to become a tower on top of her, to protect her. We're going to keep people away. We're going to run interference. This is what good physical brothers do. Young men in the room, this is your job if you have a sister. You're the defensive linebacker keeping the wicked Shechems of the world away from your sister. They're doing what their daddy should have done, but their response is actually going to go completely overboard as well. And because they're Jacob's sons, the way they go about enacting their overkill vengeance is done by way of deception. Take a look at verse 13. Jacob, the great deceiver, has raised a bunch of deceivers. So the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and had this outrageous offer to buy their sister. They, They say this. They said, well, we can't do this we can't give her to someone who's uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace. This circumcision, it was the sign of the covenant to show that you were part of God's people. You got circumcised. So they said, only on this condition will we agree with you, that, that you become as we are. Every male of you needs to become circumcised. Then we'll give you our daughters to you. You can take our daughters. We'll dwell with you, become one people. But if you won't listen to us, then we're going to come take our daughter and, and, and we'll be gone. So they say this wouldn't be lawful because it it, it wasn't. We've talked about this earlier on. Circumcision was a marker of God's people. And all throughout the scriptures, we see the scriptures from beginning to end making it clear that the people of God aren't to intermarry with those outside. Front to back, um, we see this in there. And the reason why, Exodus 34 tells us, it says, you must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. That's what they're trying to do here. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. Now, they might not be physical gods. They could be any sort of thing. Everyone's bowing to something, though. So they lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, live a life of dedication to these objects of worship. 
you will go with them. Then you'll accept their daughters who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your son. And they'll seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. This is the danger. This is why God tells people not to marry those outside of the people of God. Joshua 23, we read this. Um, so this is as the, the, the people of God are coming up out of Egypt, about to take possession of the promised land. They're instructed, if you turn away from me and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. This is what the law and the Pentateuch told them. This is what they were instructed. This story is a living illustration of this to them. And this is a command in the Old Testament, but it's a command in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 6 tells believers this, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, meaning the God of this age? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, this text, it says unequally yoked at the top, and we're not an agrarian society, so for some this is a, a new term. I think if you've grown up in the church, often we think of unequally yoked as like one strong and one weak. This is not what it's saying. Unequally yoked is two different types of animals. So when it's calling Christians and non-Christians together as unequally yoked, kind of what, it, what it's saying here is that by our very nature, we're different. God's done something in us. We're not to be unequally yoked. And so this is what the brothers are arguing from, from this baseline when they say it's not right that our sister would marry you. You're not a worshiper of God. You're not circumcised. Therefore, we shouldn't be uniting. If the very center thing of our life is that we're made by God, exist for God, if somebody doesn't share that, how can you really unite around what else? Your love of racket sports? Like, I don't know, what, what, what do you unite around? So the brothers say, if you want to marry our sister, you have to become circumcised. You need to put on this sign to show that you're part of the people of God. But here, sometimes I think Christians will, will do this today. You see this. Christians will go, okay, well, I really like this person. Um, he's not a believer, but he'll come to church with me on Sundays, so I'll marry him. If you're growing up in the Catholic tradition, this happens a lot. Well, she's not a Catholic, but... My priest will, will sprinkle holy water on her and she'll take communion and now we can be married. Like, voila. We, kinda, we, we, we do this thing. We'll do this little ceremony and then everything will be okay. That's kind of what's going on. But except they're not actually trying to convert these men. They're not. They're not trying to make them followers of God. They're not recording anything about the story. They're just saying, you need to do this outward sign because what they're actually trying to do is incapacitate them. Take a look at verse 18. It spells it out. So these words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Um, and the young men didn't delay to do the thing because they wanted the women. So, uh, so Hamor and his son Shechem, they came to the gate of their city, spoke to the men of their city saying, 
These men are at peace with us. Um, Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to this, though. So they're saying, hey, we're going to get all the women, guys, but we need to do this thing. Now, of course, every guy's mind's going, well, I don't know if I want to do that. And so then they say, well, won't their livestock be their ours? Won't their property be ours? Won't all their beasts be ours? So they do this. And, and then verse 25, it says this, that after they had done this, pardon me, on the third day when they were still sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. So apparently, when adults are circumcised, it's quite painful. There's inflammation. You have a fever on the third day. Apparently, they knew this, so they take advantage of it, and they go in, and, and, and they kill everyone. Look at this. It says, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So she was in there. They went and killed them for their atrocious act. They took their sister back. But then it says this, the sons of Jacob came upon the city, plundered it. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and field, all their wealth, all their children, all their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. Not only did they go enact revenge on Shechem, which is one thing. They go and they just pour out their wrath on on everyone. Everyone, while they're home recovering, lulled into a state of security, they just completely sack this city. And there's a couple things to notice here. First, is just as Shechem was overcome and by his emotions and did an atrocious act by giving in to his base desires, so too did these two brothers give in to their, their base anger. And it's just as wicked. One thing, Shechem and Hamor getting their judgment, killing everyone because you're angry, that's popping your top. That's giving in, just becoming a slave to your anger. On the other hand, you had Shechem, who just became a slave to his lusts. Both are the same problem. And in the process of judging Shechem for for doing that, they do the same thing. Second thing is that, again, what we see is Jacob is just standing idly by. He lets his sons talk for him. He lets them defend their sister's honor. He doesn't stop them when they go way over the top. He doesn't lead a correct response. He doesn't stop an incorrect one. He says nothing. In fact, the only thing this text records Jacob saying at all is this. Him going to his sons and saying, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me, I'll be destroyed. He's worried about himself, not his daughter. He's cowering in fear. We're going to see next week as we go into chapter 35 here that God takes this man, this coward, and he renames him Israel. He's, he's the namesake of the country of Israel. He's kind of the, the figurehead for 
all Israelites, all Jews. And in many ways, he's kind of a, a, a picture and a figure and a type and uh, of all of God's people. Anyone who would call themselves a follower of God. And I think that's because that we're prone to these same tendencies. Passive intolerance, or pardon me, passive tolerance rather than action. We're indifferent. We're passive to our surrounding culture. We saw this earlier on in the book of Genesis that we were made to be culture creators. We were made to be in the garden and expanding God's created order out across the whole world. But early on, it got upset. So we see this, um, the people of God getting absorbed into Babel, a great symbol for the culture of the world. We drift towards, we drift away from God. We see this in um, the Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of God moving into it. Actually, Lot went a lot like um, Jacob here, He went and he set up a tent outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, and one chapter later, he's inside. He's bought real estate, and he's living inside as well. We see this. Jacob comes back to the promised land. He he sets up shop outside, and he ends up inside because we are drifting towards culture. And here's the thing. We see this in the church today as well. The people of God who are meant to be the salt and light of the world are oftentimes doing a lot less seasoning of the world and instead rather being seasoned by the world. Culture is seeping into the church. The church today is being offered the same thing Shechem and and Hamor are offering. Intermarriage, becoming one of us, lose your distinction, buy real estate here, find your hope here, um, cash in here. It's the same thing Hamor is offering that's being offered to us as the church. And instead of you know, being a reflection of the kingdom into the world, the church in many cases is becoming a mirror of the world. We see this in the church. Like sermons look more like TED Talks. Worship looks more like a concert. And then all of the Christian life is almost indistinguishable from the culture around. It's the same thing God's warning about here. And it goes all the way through from beginning all the way to end. If you go to Revelation 2 and 3, there's stories there of seven letters to the church. Different churches of the time warning them to be on guard against the culture. Why? Because there's a default there's, a, there's an allure where the church is getting drawn out into the surrounding culture. And praxis, there is a warning here for us, just as this warning was written for the people of Israel. The warning is this, the culture around us is not neutral. It's not. And so we need to be on guard. Shechem wants to use the daughters of God to satisfy his own sexual appetite. There's men who prey on young Christian women because they think that they're naive and their dads are cowards, is the nicest word I can say. Hamor wants to assimilate the people of God for his own financial benefit then, just as he does now. The culture wants to assimilate the church for financial benefit. The culture around is seeking to draw us in, and we risk being absorbed into it if we are not on guard. And so my question for us all here today is this. Have we become too cozy with the culture? Have you? 
grown too cozy with the culture? Is the world shaping us or are we shaping the world? Are you shaping those around you or are you being shaped by them? And specifically to the men in the room, we need to see this story shows us that when good men fail to take action, bad men step in and fill that void. And We need to be men of action. Christian men need to actively engage and resist the evil in the world, not just for the good of our kids, and your kids need it, but for the good of our culture. And the question for us husbands, dads, are we guarding our kids? Are we training them? Are we letting culture do that for us? Are we choosing courage or cowardice? Are we acting or are we, like Jacob, guilty of inaction and indifference? The world needs men who will not abdicate this responsibility. Your kids need a daddy who is not abdicating this responsibility. Your daughters, men, need a dad who does not abdicate his responsibility. Young men, your sisters need brothers who have not abdicated their responsibility. This is heavy. Um, I mean, this has been doing business in me all week long. Um, and I want I wanted to conclude us not so heavy. Um, not fully concluding it. I, I said we're concluding. I didn't really mean it. Just said that so I could get your attention again. <laughs> I, want to, I want to remind us of what God's purpose for us is. I can warn, but I want to remind us what God's actually made the church for. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.13. He says, you, Christian, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? We are meant to be seasoning spicing, preserving all the things that salt does. And if we're not doing that, it says it's good for nothing. Throw it out. It goes on to say, Matthew 5, 14, that we are the light of the world. So we're, we're actually meant to be the light into the world. A city up on a hill that can't be hidden. It says, don't hide a lamp, put it under a basket, put it on a stand. It's meant to give light everywhere. So that... They would see the light and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. That's what we exist for. Revelation calls us a lampstand, where the church is just something that's meant to hold Jesus high for others to see. 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us this, church. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are priests meant to go be priests for the culture around. We're a royal priesthood priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You are salt, you are light, and we're supposed to go proclaim that light to other people. This is what we exist for. And as we conclude and the band comes up here, I want to point out one final thing. This text, it presents to us a picture of Jacob's inaction, his failure to father, his failure to act, his reticence to defend. And some of you here might have a dad like that. Some of you have been abused like Dinah because of a terrible father, 
A father's job is to be a picture of the heavenly father to his kids, and some of you have not had that, and I am so sorry. But the scripture here presents another glorious truth to us, that God is a better father than yours, and God is a better father than Jacob. Unlike Jacob, God the Father did act. He did defend. And he did take action in order to save and redeem us. He is far better than Jacob. And there's something more here in that, like Dinah's brothers, Jesus, who the scripture calls our brother, he didn't come and kill everyone else to save us. He came and died, he himself, to save us. And so we have salvation. And this is good news. Here's why. Because if you are like Jacob, you have a better example now to follow in. It's Jesus. If you are like Dinah, and you've been defiled, and you are unclean, there is a way for you to be made new. There's a way to be washed There's a new identity and there's a new hope available for you in Christ. And I'm not trying to minimize anything that's happened to you, but I do want to give you hope. If you were like Hamor, who high-fived his son's wicked disobedience, there's hope for you if you repent of your actions. And if you are like Shechem, the wicked defiler, there's a way for you to repent. And instead of you getting the death that you deserve for your wicked actions, there's one who will come and stand in your place and take it. His name is Jesus.